It's 8 minutes now before 8 p.m. And uh, you tuned into Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. It's our wrap of the top business stories. And uh, helping us to take a look at these stories is uh, a market analyst, Nuluanjli Mtumbin. Nuluanjli, good evening to you and welcome. Hi, how are you? Mkona, Gunjan. Yeah, Pina. Good, good, good. Nuluanjli, let's, let's start off here with what's happening in Angola. And uh, we'll certainly come back to some of the stories in the world of retail, ICT, um, and, of course, uh, something that came out of Parliament. But uh, uh, it seems that, I guess, the um, new administration in Angola continuing on its path of uh, trying to uh, consider some asset sales here. And uh, uh, now it seems that the attention has uh, been focused on uh, the big guys, Sonangol and Endiama, uh, who are the uh, oil and diamonds companies of the state of Angola, respectively. Yes. I think, you know, when you're in a precarious debt situation like the Angolan government has been, and this has led you to a bailout from the IMF, um, you kind of have to tick a lot of boxes to secure that financing. And I imagine one of those would have been the asset sales. Um, as you may know, I mean, the Angolan economy is you know, very reliant on oil. And so there's lots of you know ownership of state assets. And through that, the realization of some of those assets is going to help, you know, kind of you know, reduce the debt burden that they've got and it's something that they have to do and have any choice at this point, given that, you know, it's been a tough economy and they've been in a recession for a couple of years now. And, and, and I mean, just, just that point of, of the oil reliance, I think, is an important one because, you know, a big part of what uh, the finance minister in Angola, Vera Davis de Souza, uh, has spoken about is trying to diversify the Angolan economy away from this sort of super-reliance on oil. What, what do you make of how well they've been able to do that, if at all? It's very difficult, and these kind of things will take, you know, decades to even get to a point, um, especially when the economy is so reliant. It's very different. If you can be South Africa, I think I don't have the exact number, but oh, we had a similar situation with gold, but it wasn't sure. as, as, as big as that, you know. I mean, I think we're less than, less than I mean, 30% of GDP related to mining. So for these, some of these African countries, it's something between 75 to as much as 80, 90% of, of you know, export revenue, as much as 75% of national GDP comes from oil exports. Yeah. So the reliance is very, very big. And I think it really is a story of very many decades. Um, and it's very, very tough because ultimately, yeah. what else do you have to kind of, you know, provide any source of income? Mm. I mean, I, I find it quite surprising that they're even in, uh, are considering floating euro bonds at a time when, you know, they're trying to have negotiations with some of their main creditors uh, to reschedule or delay some of the interest payments, uh, largely because of where the share price, or sorry, the, the Brent crude oil price is, uh, nowhere near the kind of $80 a barrel that uh, uh, nations like Angola had become accustomed to. So I think, you know, at this point in time, they probably will try to make sure that they get through um, some asset sales first and, you know, kind of get some few transactions going through before they're going to go for the more euro bonds. Um, it's a low-rate environment, but I think, you know, if they can reduce their risk premium, um, that they'll have to pay, that they'll, be, they'll, they'll have to, you know, get that they offer investors on, on the bonds, um, it will help. So I think... It is. It, they don't have any other choice because if they receive the, the revenue in, in, in foreign currency, it's much more meaningful. Um, but it makes no, makes no sense getting the, especially since the economy is also, they rely on foreign currency because they're an exporter. They're a heavy exporter of, 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 of oil. So they do need that foreign currency 
so-called investment as opposed to local currency. So I don't think they have a choice, but at the same time, they need to kind of, you know, give investors reasons to invest. Otherwise, they're not going to, you mm. know, will be failed. They'll, the, the issuance will fail. And then, and then, of course, I mean, w- w- when you think about the political situation there, I mean, a lot of young un- Angolans have uh, taken to the streets to express their anger at unemployment and uh, rising costs of living uh, at a time where even the you know, governing MPLA is finding itself uh, faced, I guess, with a credibility crisis this after uh, you know, uh, decades and decades of the Dos Santos presidency there um, and, of course, the transition that happened uh, uh, about 18 months, we'll say, two, two years ago. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, when your country's on its knees, that's when you see a rise of, you know, you know, social action amongst people. And that's what you're mm. seeing because, you know, because the country has been in a recession for so long. And it's, I mean, if you're in a recession and you're relying on bailouts from, you know, in the IMF, your country's in a pretty bad situation. And you know, one even knows what's on the ground, how worse it is on the ground if you're in that kind of situation. So you can just imagine how, you know, you know, especially the youth coming into this, you know, they, they're inheriting a very, not only just the corruption, and we've seen how it's like mm. in our countries that what we, you know, the youth are inheriting high unemployment, um, state-owned entities, you've got ESCOM that, you know, still struggling to keep the lights on because of corruption. Um, and it's, uh, it's the youth that, that's inheriting all this. So I think, you know, sure. there needs to be that kind of, you know, social unrest because of it. Um, so the government can start taking corruption seriously. Mm-hmm. Talking about corruption, what do you make of uh, Stephen Van Collar's uh, crusade at EOH and, uh, of course, some of the revelations that have come through in the Zondo Commission? So, I mean, you know, we already know that in terms of the biggest problems with EOH is that they found that a lot of the public service-linked contracts um, mm. You know, were you know fraudulent and you know suspicious, and they just you know they didn't were not looking right. So the fact that there will be public service figures or politicians that are going to be implicated should not come as a surprise. And because we know our ruling party, um, you know, is part of government, we should also not be surprised that there'll be linkages to the ruling party to those public service officials. You know, um, and so in these names come up, but you know we've seen this come through before. We've seen with you know even with we had you know the state dairy farm instance, you know all around you know the ruling party because they're obviously in the positions in government. So it all comes full circle, and we've seen that we've got a problem of corruption within the ruling party, and they'll keep showing up even in the corporate world. Not just limits in terms of the private public sector, mm. but also the sources through private sectors, because at some point there's an overlap, and the same people are going to be involved in these kind of, um, you know, fraudulent and corruption issues. Mm. I mean, you can imagine this. This is the, I guess, this is the set of contracts that uh, led to Microsoft, uh, you know, ditching EOH as one of their partners here in South Africa. Uh, EOH saying they've handed some of this information to the Hawks, some of what was presented. Uh, by ENS, uh, who had done the um, the forensic work uh, uh, for this particular matter, uh, and I guess the big question then for for EOH going forward is how do you create those uh, I guess international partnerships that are so critical in in the space where they sell software as a service. So I think you know what they've been going on is trying to you know when you change management and the management you know makes the priority to hold those people accountable and create a change in organization is the only way they can kind of 
reaffirm, you know, and with the confidence. That's the only thing they can do. You really have to be seen as making a change into the culture of the organization. You know, where there's tough decisions to be made, you need to be making it. Unfortunately, it only will take time for people to regain their trust, especially in an environment where there's no growth. And, you know, because the last thing you know, to invest, is a, invest into is a company that was ex, is ex-growth and also has issues of corruption in the past. So I think it'll over time, I think that's all they can do. They just have to be patient and keep ensuring and showing showing the public investors that they're committed to keeping a clean house and just doing what they do. Mm, mm. Let's shift our attention now uh, away from what was happening at EOH. We stay in the ICT sector. Yebo year two. Now, uh, I always find these uh, sort of BE entities very, very interesting. Um, and, um, you know, saying in the SN's announcement, uh, that, uh, yeah, the only real material investment is their investment in Vodacom Group. Uh, and uh, But it seems that, I guess, uh, when you think about how much they've received by way of dividends, uh, that uh, they would certainly see this as a good one. I mean, $463 million in dividends, um, and, of course, uh, also allowing them to reduce their debt significantly. Yeah, so they are actually invested in Vodacom SA and not Vodacom Group. And that's the big difference is that it's directly into the South African companies. And we'll see where it is. And they have, you know, structure, preference structure where um, they've got about 9.5 billion of debt. And the sort of dividends that they're currently receiving from Vodacom SA is in the tune of 400 million, you know, in this unique reported results. So 9.5 billion of debt versus 400 million. So it will take a few years for the debt mm. to be paid out. But nonetheless, it's still profitable. And I think one thing that's, you know, you almost forget that, you know, when the repo rate comes down, the corporates do benefit as well because that person's share structure is linked to prime. And with the prime coming down, also it means that the interest payments also come down, which is ultimately mm. beneficial in reducing that debt. So that's also been a positive thing for you know, as a shareholder is that with the repo rate also coming down, pushing prime down as well, that means that, it does helps to accelerate the payment of that debt so that, you know, mm. the debt is fully paid off and holders will get the actual dividend flow through come through. Yeah, yeah. So, so no, right, I mean, you, you made a point earlier on that uh, these guys have a 6.23% investment in Vodacom South Africa operations. Um, and, I, and I recall that, I guess that, that was the part of the first year or year two, but wasn't that changed at some point? Didn't Vodacom then say, you know, yes, you were sort of, I guess, two levels re- removed from the action and... In the second iteration of the deal, it was actually a stake in, in, in the bigger group. Or am I missing something there? So, you may be right. I don't know. But I think the last document I read was on it. So, I could be wrong on that. Um, but we'll, we don't know. <laughs> sure, sure. I'll, I'll leave it on there. But I know that, you know, um, it was a vote from SA1, which was listed, um, specifically mm. listed on the, on, the, on the exchange. So, but I could be corrected on this one. Yeah, yeah, but but then you know when you look at um, entities or vehicles like this, uh, I mean, you, you were saying that uh, the debt burden is something that will probably take a few years for them to sort of ride through, uh, and uh, I guess let's assume that they do. Let's assume that there's a consistent stream of dividends that they get year on year. Um, at the end of that period, when they've paid off all of the debt, um, I, I mean, what, what's your sense of, I guess, what all of this is going to mean for many of the people who are invested in Yabuyet? So the whole point is that these are supposed to be long-term partnerships. It's not really supposed to be something that you're going to be in for 
for a year or two because I mean, there's communities mm. involved, also, you know, individual shareholders. So these BE structures that are created are really meant to be for long term. And because also it's not just the dividend aspect that you will get at the end of the term, but the share price movement is also one. Um, where sure, sure. When it's listed Capital on gig, the exchange, yeah. you can actually exchange it and sell it in and out until it, sell it in and out. So that is a benefit of, being, of it being listed. And then you can actually, you know, sell out and gain profits on it as, you know, the share price moves up. But, mm. you know, from a dividend perspective, the fact that, you know, you know the debt is paid down means that now that, that share price, that share is coming through the dividend as opposed to just you only relying on capital gains at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Let's shift our attention to Lewis. Now, I mean, I found I found this particular story very interesting. Um, certainly, as somebody uh, who sort of grew up, we all grew up very familiar with the brand. I mean, about Batengse Room Divide and all unit and and all manner of other things. Um, and they now have investments, of course, in Bears, Lewis, UFO Furniture, uh, and even an insurance operation. Now. It seems that uh, they, they, notwithstanding the impact of COVID-19 and people not being able to come into their stores and buy furniture, the annuity type income they get from insurance, finance charges, initiation fees, and all manner of other things certainly, I guess, kept them kept them afloat there. Yes. So, you know, I mean, I mean, I was talking about this earlier, and I was just surprised that between June and September, people actually had pent-up demand to go buy furniture. Um, and you must realize one thing. If you are having annuity income, it means that you know if you don't have any sales, that annuity income will still come in, but you don't have any rise in revenue. But you actually have to still go in and make sales to actually grow that revenue, which means that despite the fact there's you know annuity income, people actually the demand was increased over the period. So um, and the, obviously they've got all these other things such as insurance and you know, the credit book, which also helps. Um, but, you know, you mustn't discount the fact that it can only grow if people are actually going into the stores and buying things, you know. So there's a demand there, and their demand for furniture is obviously linked to how they can grow their credit credit income and, you know, as ancillary income, your, your insurance income. It is all linked to people actually going to the store, and that's the only way mm. you can grow the book. Yeah. And then share repurchases? I mean... Yeah, I don't know. I, I often sit here and ask myself, you know, is this a time where uh, you probably want to be buying back shares, you know, already in the first phase of, uh, or since the commencement of this program, 13.6 million shares bought at just shy of 30 rand per share. And it seems now that a further 10% of the issued share capital of Lewis is also going to be bought back. This was the perfect time. In fact, March, you know, if you were a company who's, um, are really making to do do share repurchases and or buybacks. March was the best time when your share prices were all down, and that would have been best time. This is the time. This is the kind of environment where if you're cash flush and you you, you know you've got the opportunity to buy back shares, that's when you do it. It's the best time. There's nothing against it, especially if you are. But what about reinvesting, I mean, What about reinvesting? You know, mm, yeah. But this is a retail store. It's not like you know you. There's much have already got the brand, and it's also not a very good time to be reinvesting as well either. I mean, if we're looking at, you know, weak growth over the next two years, um, you know, maybe the opportunities are not so good at the moment. Um, so you only obviously rein- you obviously the re- the buyback is if you have no better investment. That's how it usually works. That's the kind of thinking that goes into decisions. Is that you'll mm. buy back your own stock if you think that you can't get anything better outside. 
and if there is nothing. And I think if you were sitting in March, I don't think any of us would have thought that between June and September, people would be going out and buying furniture. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> we and, I uh, don't think we would have made the decision to go and buy another furniture, a strong no, furniture sure. shop. Exactly. So there's no way you could yeah, have taken yeah, in that. Yeah. No, you should have done that in that environment. Mm. Well, I guess nobody would have wanted to go into a higher purchase agreement. And I think the point that you're making around sort of operational investment opportunities or acquisitions being few and far between certainly makes things a bit more complicated and difficult. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was tweeting about this earlier, and uh, one of the comments that uh, um, Russell Rensberg uh, made uh, was that, you know, these guys have always been effectively a loan business, and uh, the conduit for some of those loans has always been the furniture. Uh, and I think he's right. I mean, if you look at um, the proportion of uh, merchandise sales that comes through credit channels and even uh, the proportion of total revenue that comes from the selling the furniture, you can begin to realize they make more money, I guess, from the credit arrangements than they do from actually selling the furniture. Well, they actually still make more money from selling the furniture, but I think <laughs> it's a... It's well, it's a how you sell it, right? <laughs> you know, but it's also a bigger contribution to total revenue than your typical retailer. Yeah. Mm, okay. All right. No, Lange, yeah. we'll have to leave it there. As always, a pleasure catching up with you. And, uh, of course, have yourself a great week. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us. My pleasure. That there was Nolan Zemtombe, a market analyst, helping us to uh, wrap up our top business stories. And uh, we continue on that vein with our tech conversations after, where we talk about the 45 million rand that Naspers's uh, uh, venture wing, uh, Naspers Foundry, has put into an uh, online learning platform called the Student Hub as uh, Naspers continues to make uh, the edtech, fintech, and classified investments on its path to become a 100% internet business. We continue after this.